All I'm going to do today is introduce the terms to this subject. What I try to do in this church is equip you to be a serious student of the Bible and to study these things out for yourself. Be like the Bereans that were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. They searched the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. You know, I'm, I'm very pleased, and uh, lots of the visiting guys from the Alliance Renewal Churches and, and other ministers that come in here and have gotten to know you guys have really marveled at the culture of study that we have throughout this church. And, you know, in the, the weekly theology group and uh, all the different ways that we do the intermediate book list and the foundational book list, the foundational articles, the podcast, and just the whole culture of studying. However, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, I urge you to excel still more. This is, we have got to become, because of what we're trying to do here, no one is trying to put, you know, there's some great movements out there that are really trying to restore the gospel. Some of them have some view of ecclesiology in the church and restoring some things about the church. Lots of them are restoring ancient and, and reformed theology. Most of those are very anti-Holy Spirit or neglect the Holy Spirit. Uh, they wouldn't see themselves as anti-Holy Spirit. But uh, indifference is actually more, you know, like in love and hate, uh, love and hate are closer, you know, anyone, anyone who's gone through any marital difficulty or had any real intense relationships knows that love and hate are closer together than love and indifference. Right, so... Uh, you know, the, 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 the modern Western church's posture of, of indifference towards the Holy Spirit, we, we just can't accomplish the, the will of God if we continue that. Because Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know the kingdom of God has come in your midst. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. It's not righteous. It's not meat and drinks. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's a righteousness, peace, and joy that can only be attained in the Holy Spirit. And it's not by my, nor by power, but by, by my spirit, says the Lord. So trying to, trying to put that together with a restored ecclesiology and a restored eschatology, and, um, nobody's doing that that we know of. We keep looking for some. There's a couple similar-minded churches that we found out east in Maryland and so forth. But um, if we're going to continue to do what we're called to do here, we kind of need everybody to buy into being a Bible scholar, really. So all I'm trying to do today is give you some introduction to terms. That's why uh, those books that are listed there, there's basically number one point, read and reread your whole Bible, and then five books listed there. Read, reread, and reread. Pete and repeat, we're in a boat. Pete fell out. Who was left? Repeat. <laughs> reread your whole Bible. So... Uh, <laughs> So, um, the first couple books, uh, The Last Days According to Jesus by R.C. Sproul, The Rapture Trap, A Catholic Response to the End Times, which is actually written by a former Protestant who's now Catholic, and Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond, which is out of the, if you're familiar with the Counterpoints Bible and Theology series, where they basically have a champion of three different perspectives present their perspective, uh, those will introduce you to what the positions are. If you want to get the right biblical hermeneutic and the right approach to these things, read number five in Eschatology of Victory and follow that up by reading Paradise Restored. Those will open your eyes to uh, the way the apostles interpreted the New Testament. 
and the way they interpreted the Old Testament. So, moving on, in Matthew 25, Jesus uh, ends the Mount Olivet Discourse with talking about the final judgment. Although, in the first part of the, Ma- uh, the Mount Olivet Discourse, he's talking about the judgment on Jerusalem. Flipping over to Acts 1.11, these men, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who is taken up from you will come in just the same way as you watched him go to heaven. He will come again physically and bodily. Any other idea is unbiblical. There will be a historical fulfillment of that. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed. If you want to do an interesting Bible study, Look at the words ignorant or informed or uninformed or unaware, depending on the translation, and look at the number of times Paul and Peter use that. And what you, one of the things that you'll find is one of the great honor, ironies of our times is all the areas that uh, Paul and Peter tell us not to be uninformed are, are the areas that the church is most uninformed in our day. <laughs> interestingly uh, and it's a hundred percent correlations it's a very interesting phenomenon so we don't want you to be uninformed about the second coming brethren about those who are asleep this was very precious territory to me uh for me uh you know that today is the first time i'm ever i'm celebrating my father's birthday since he passed away uh the other 58 years of my life i celebrated his birthday with him still on the earth uh, lots of you know my Christian life started with, uh, I'd been a Christian about one month when my little brother died very suddenly, closest person in the world to me, and my first Christian speech was at his funeral. So uh, this verse was really one of the first verses that I ever exegeted at the, when I was 17 years old and had been a Christian one month. But we do not want you to be informed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. Notice he doesn't say that you won't grieve. But when you're grieving for someone who was in Christ, I've had two brothers who died, one who taught that Christianity was the major source of the evils of the world, and the other who loved Jesus very much. And believe me, it's a whole different thing. It really is. You still grieve, but it's a whole different kind of grief when you knew they served the Lord, they loved the Lord with all their life. You know, my father's funeral last year was kind of a graduation, you know. Um, from 1967 on, I never knew him to not read at least two, script, two, two chapters of Scripture in the morning and two devotionals. And uh, he did that day in, day out, my whole life. And, uh, you know, what a, what a wonderful thing when someone dies having served the Lord for over 50 years. So, um, anyway, he goes on to say, uh, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and Paul makes clear that if you don't believe that, you got nothing, God will bring him though, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we say that by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Last verse he mentioned in Jesus, I skipped that by accident. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. All right, so let's get into, uh, hopefully I got enough time to cover the material today for a change. I'm liking it. Uh, I usually spend too much time reviewing. All right, so the first, I want to make basically about five major points today. The first of which is this. The second coming of Christ in biblical and historical and theological perspective versus the new modernist 19th to 21st century evangelical viewpoints. We have covered much in this church about how this came about, but again, in the 1870s primarily, although many of the ideas trace back to to the to John Wesley and the Wesleyites, some to the Moravians, uh, who did some great, wonderful things in the church. Uh, uh, some some of it not dry, you know, came about uh, in the uh, 1840s. There was actually a cult called the Millerites who kind of uh, the whole rapture millennial thing. They they kind of invented that in the 1840s and so forth. But in terms of the historical perspective, for the most part, what was known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the of the late 19th century birthed two very modern views of Christianity. The modernists who embraced evolution, anti-supernaturalism, and the Bible is just stories and myths. The fundamentalists who tried to counter that, but instead of countering it the way the apostles would have in the early church, met the same challenges, invented all, all new paradigms for looking at scripture in the name of being literal. Uh, they... And kind of invented a whole new view of the faith. Now there are many movements that are starting to see this, and, and you know, thank God for resurgences and gospel coalitions and and so forth. But um, we need to see it more fully than most people are seeing it. So um, out of that viewpoint uh, came new viewpoints on almost everything. I'm just going to focus on the second coming and on eschatology, which is the Greek for the study of the last things. So one is the historical viewpoint of the church, and simply is this. The second coming and the final judgment are one contiguous event. What I just read in 1 Thessalonians is not something that happens seven years, three and a half years, or, or, or some such period of time, or a thousand years before the end of the world. When he comes back in glory... He'll come back to judge the living and the dead. Okay? The end of the eon, or in the Greek, or the end of the age, not, and it's not, it's a different word than, it's not the end of the age as used in Acts 2 and so forth, the end, which is the birth of the church age and the end of Israel as the people of God. It's the, the end of time, the end of this time-space continuum, as we know it today, uh, that subject, the second coming, the final judgment, the earthly and heavenly reigns of Jesus, Jesus judging the living and the dead and his kingdom having no end, all of that is viewed in the church history as one contiguous event, not something that drags out for uh, a whole lot of events. Uh, versus the new modern view that there will be a rapture followed by a tribulation, judgment of the wicked, and versus judgment of the righteous will be at different times. 
the second coming and the millennial earthly reign will be at different times. And the earthly millennial reign prior to the reign in heaven and multiple discontinuous events. Now, there's lots of schemes of this, and we're going to touch on a few of them. But that was never taught by any Christians up until the 1800s. And if Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you have to be suspect about any ways of interpreting the Bible that are completely modern. Okay? If no one ever thought of them before. Now, um, these ideas uh, were first started by a, a group called the Millerites, of which there were some in the Cleveland area of Ohio mostly in England, uh, Pennsylvania, New York. I think Miller himself was living in New York State when he came up with this idea. But it became a concept called millenarianism, which uh, is the idea that the, the, the second coming of Christ will certainly be in our generation, and in, in extreme cases, they go so far as to set a date for it, as the Millerites did. And there became this whole movement, newspapers, I think at one point they had 16 different newspapers and periodicals and hundreds of various um, Presbyterian, Baptist, Quaker, what you name it, kinds of Christians were swept up in this. And I forget, uh, I think it was 1843, but they had figured out why this was going to be the right year and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the whole, and it came and went. And for a time, it splintered into different groups, some of whom said, well, this wrote new books about why we were off by one year and, and all that. I don't know if, you, if you, most of you aren't old enough, but there was a similar kind of idea back in 1988. There was a, a book called 88 Reasons the Rapture is in 1988, and it was very popular and so forth. And, of course, I was uh, pastoring a church of most, mostly college students back then who were super sharp biblically and theologically, so they thought that was hilarious, and they all bought copies, and they brought them to the New Year's Eve party. And, uh, and some predicted, and sure enough, he, the guy who wrote the book came out with a, reason, a book in, in 89 called 89 Reasons Why it was, it was in 89, and I was off by a year. It didn't sell as well. But I uh, <laughs> wonder how long you could keep a scheme like that going. And of course, they had all these jokes, and they were going to start a rapture supply catalog business, so they had a rapture helmet. In case you were indoors when the rapture hit, it would drill through for you. <laughs> and, uh, and then they had a rapture parachute in case you had evil thoughts while you are on the way up. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one of my post-millennials friends when asked, well, what if there really is a rapture? He said, well, I guess I'll change my theology midair. All right, so uh, this uh, idea was picked up by a guy named J.N. Darby. There's still a Darby New Testament that you can get. Don't. Um, and it was followed up by a guy named C.I. Schofield. He first published the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. I think the uh, the most popular version came out in the late 1920s. Almost all Baptists, uh, Pentecostals, and, and so forth used the Schofield Reference Bible. When I became a Christian, it was still like any, any Christian over 40 had one of those. And that was the one you should be reading, <laughs> and uh, so forth. And uh, Schofield popularized many of the 
the modernist evangelical ideas of dispensationalism, antinomianism, a reductionist gospel, that uh, none of the prophecies of God in the Old Testament apply to the church. They only apply to a new restored physical Israel and that there will be uh, when Jesus comes back, not only will Israel be restored as a nation, but the temple re- will be restored and temple sacrifice will be restored and, and Jews will once again be saved by works. And they popularized the idea that Jews in the Old Testament were saved by works and by blood sacrifices, and they will be again. And of course, Paul makes it clear that no one was ever saved that way. You know, the, Jew, the people that were saved in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, it was always by faith. It was just faith in a future atonement versus faith in a past accomplished atonement. Faith in the same God, the same scriptures, and the same promises, and the same character of God. So ultimately, your belief, you know, John says, whoever has said has believed him has set his seal that God is true. As the uh, the good point of the, uh, the uh, apologetics video that they were playing Friday night, which I didn't care for because I thought it was unnecessarily combative. But he was making a point in what's called presuppositional apologetics about um, uh, about how everyone knows and men are suppressing the truth and righteousness and, and so forth and, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it, the bottom line gets back down to why do we know anything? There's only two really logical perspectives. You have a finite mind. I don't know if you noticed that yet. What's kind of amazing today is how many people, no matter what, and you see this all throughout Christian circles, no matter what subject is discussed, and no matter how educated or uneducated people are, at the end of the discussion, they say, well, I agree with that, but I didn't agree with it. But I, and it's all about I, 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 I. And the appeal is to my point of view. And that's exactly what the serpent said to Eve. You shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself good for me. Now, I believe in personal conscience, but I believe we have to submit to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, the historical teaching of the church, and so forth. And because it gets down to this, we our minds are finite. And so the only way we could have any knowledge of anything is of a God who is, is, is infinite, has told us. And we've come to know and have believed his report. God, when you, when you become a born-again Christian, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, I heard John having a discussion with somebody about that Friday night. When you become a born-again Christian, the reason you know that you know that you know is because God has revealed himself to you in such a way that you know that he's true. And all men are liars. And even women. But uh, <laughs> I was once uh, leading a, gr- a guy who was on LSD to Christ, and he said, I suddenly realized that all men were liars. I said, that's right. Then I realized he was thinking of just the male gender. <laughs> so even the women are the liars, too. <laughs> Trust me, I'm married. No. <laughs> oh, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> all right, so. Schofield uh, popularized these things, and eventually Charles Ryrie, who is kind of the kingpin of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's 91 years old now, still alive, still writing books. Now, the problem is is that most evangelical Bible-believing Christians bought these ideas between the 1890s and the 1930 range. 
since that time because the system is so bad. For instance, you know, the, they taught that uh, you can't follow the Sermon on the Mount because obviously the standards are so high. The church had historically taught the Sermon on the Mount is the foundational teaching of Jesus of what it means to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. But the dispensationalists taught that it's for the millennium because no one could ever live those standards. So uh, after the second coming of Christ and after we have our sin nature taken away, then we won't lust anymore or hate our brother or, uh, or whatever. And uh, now, almost no dispensationalists hold to the full system anymore. It, it keeps getting more moderate and more pieces and more pieces keep falling off and very few dispensational premillennialist antinomian uh, people, uh, what they're kind of do is they don't want to like change. It's kind of like uh, a person who's in a certain religion, uh, maybe they're Muslim or whatever, and they're lost, but they keep seeing the fallacies and their way of thinking, but they don't want to convert. So that's kind of where the whole evangelical world is at right now. The system has long since fallen apart and it's not working. And uh, there's more and more, um, you know, movements that are rising to challenge it and say the things that lots of us have been saying since the early 70s. But very few people are kind of like throwing the whole thing out. And, uh, you know, we use Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology book, for instance, for our Systematic Theology class. And he's a mixture of the evangelical and reformed position. Um, so... You know, just be aware of that. All right, let's move on, because I went, spent way too much time developing that. Four viewpoints of the Mount Olivet Discourse. I'm not going to deal too much about the historicist. The, uh, I will talk about the futurists. The futurists believe that when you're getting into Matthew 24 and Mark 14 and so forth, when Jesus, when, they, when uh, the disciples come to Jesus and say, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And Because Jesus has just told them, do you see this beautiful temple? Not one stone will be left unturned and so forth. Futurists believe that's all something that's going to happen in the future. Everything he's saying in Matthew 24 and 25 is for a future time period. And it was all, therefore, symbolic. Okay, now, his, historists believe that some of it happened then, some of it has happened through the century, and it's kind of a sort of a crazy position. And there's not that many who follow that. Uh, then there's a position called the full preterist. A full preterist believes that all of that in Matthew 24 and 25 applies to the destruction of Jerusalem. And none of it applies to any other time period. Now, I will say that uh, where we are as a church is we are what's called partial preterist. However, like so many things, we do not require you agree with us to be a good member of this church, and in some cases, not even required to be an elder or leader of a home group or whatever. Uh, we're really not into dividing over every little thing. But um, what um, the partial preterist would say is most of what Jesus is talking about, because he gives us a time text, he says, this generation will not pass away till all of this has been fulfilled. But again, at the end of Matthew 25, he says, but, and he starts talking about the final judgment. 
So some of those things are, were yet to be fulfilled. A full preterist would believe even the second coming of Christ, the Greek word parousia, happened uh, in 70 AD when Christ came between the years, during the three and a half years of tribulation between midway through 67 AD till the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when Titus destroyed the temple and took his stand in the Holy of Holies and, you know, as the great blasphemer against Yahweh and so forth, uh, a, a full preterist would say that itself was the second coming of Christ. He came in a spiritual way in full judgment. A partial preterist would say he came as, the, as, as fulfilling all the promises of God from Deuteronomy 28 on to that, that God was going to fully judge Israel and they were no longer going to be his people. As Jesus said, behold, your temple is left to you desolate and so forth. But there is still a second coming and there are still ongoing spiritual fulfillments of these principles. In fact, principles of judgment are eternal principles and they, his judgments are in all the earth and so forth. So... Um, if you want some uh, exposure to that point of view, read the book, An Eschatology of Victory, by J. Marcellus Kick. That was the position of many of the early church fathers and most of the reformers. Okay? Now, the millennium is refers to uh, the fact that in Revelation 20... I had intended to write, read this, but I'm looking at the clock, and it's like, yeah. So hopefully you've read Revelation 20, verse 1 through 8, but six times it refers to a period of a 1,000 years. And so various millennium positions have to do with what that means. There's a high correlation between millennial positions and your positions about what happened at the Olivet Discourse. By the way, if you want to... A more full explanation and you don't want to read a book on it, uh, go back on our podcast and look at uh, my teaching called Mountains in Matthew. And John's taught on it and so forth. But just like in uh, in the Old Testament when they stood on Mount Goboa and Mount Ebal and they pronounced curses and so forth, Jesus stood on Mount Olivet facing Mount Zion facing the temple and pronouncing all the curses of all the prophets of the Old Testament upon Jerusalem, saying, this, I'm done with you. This is the last generation. But as God always does, he always takes a remnant out of his old people, and there's always a continuity in the covenants. Dispensationalism sees a, sees a radical discontinuity. Biblical theology, God always has to fulfill a covenant in order to bring about a new covenant, because he can't abrogate or take away any covenant. That's why he said, I didn't come to, to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So he has to fulfill the law, uh, because he's the one who made the covenant. And all the covenants of the Bible have one clear lesson, that all the recipients of the covenants are always covenant breakers, and therefore it's God that provides the atonement and the fulfillment for us covenant breakers. And in the new covenant, the greatest promise is that in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the power of the resurrected Christ and in the power of our new nature, which we get when we're regenerated in Christ, and it gets further empowerment when we get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and hopefully it gets further empowerment time and time and time again as we get filled and filled and refilled because we leak. Uh, in that promise, 
we can actually live the commandments of God and live the calling that we're supposed to be and bring forth fruits of the Spirit and be Christ-like and accomplish the purposes of God in the church and throughout the whole world. We don't have to be covenant breakers because he has fulfilled the covenant once and for all. He cried out, it's finished. And that all the graces of God are available to everyone in the church. So, um, the four perspectives on the millennium is amillennialism. Ah just means against or, or no. So they, they have no literal millennial kingdom, no inevitable historical direction. Uh, some, they think there will be some but very little Christian cultural Christian influence or restoration, and evil's growth will accelerate uh, prior to the second coming. This is uh, the position of most Roman Catholic leadership. It was the position of quite a few leaders in the church throughout the centuries. It's been probably the second most popular perspective. And they would see the kingdom as becoming more or less manifest at different times. And, and so our job, what, what the Bible means by us reigning in history, is they reigned in history when they were faithful to Christ, even while Nero was killing them, and Diocletian was killing them, and so forth. So sometimes the influence we have for Christ will be to be a faithful witness and when the church is, is uh, you know, being persecuted. Other times the church will grow and have influence, but that will ebb and flow and ebb and flow through until Christ comes back. And there will be kind of a, an ebb or a, a diminishing of that prior to the second coming. That's the amillennial position. By the way, in most of these millennial positions, they see the word millennium at, or the word a thousand as being uh, a biblical reference to a certain long fulfilled period of time. Like when the scripture says that to the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It's not literally a thousand years. It's just a complete period of time. Could be several thousand periods of years. Could be a few hundred, but it's not a literal thousand. Uh, the post-millennialists, which most uh, leadership in our church are post-millennialists. Um, and again, read an eschatology of victory. And again, it was the favorite perspective of the of most of the early church fathers and almost all of the reformers, Calvin, Knox, Luther, etc. And that is the idea that Christ, the reign of Christ, started with the resurrection, ascension, glorification, and coronation of Christ, and the outpouring of the anointing oil and his coronation poured into the earth and became Pentecost, and that that was the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament. They're all yes and amen in Christ Jesus, and that the church would grow in influence gradually, uh, re restoring everything that was damaged at the fall of man and taking it beyond restoration to God's original intent and purpose, rebuilding the world according to Christ. In economics, politics, religion, uh, music, family life, in every way the church would be salt and light. Now, in the post-millennial position, it doesn't mean we're going to take over anything politically. We wouldn't want to. It's not, uh, the idea is not an ecclesiocracy that the church takes over. 
uh, it is somewhat a theocracy that the church influences through through the liberating uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, that the church will influence the arts, sports, family life, etc., and that the world will continually be changed greater and greater. Now, that uh, has, of course, uh, the, the Western church lost that perspective in the late 1800s, and then we exported it to the whole world through the missions movement. But, and it is now uh, the, the next position called, there's historical premillennialism, where Christ returns to set up a literal thousand-year geopolitical earthly kingdom when he returns to the Mount of Olivet, as Acts 111 said he does. George Eldon Ladd, if you've ever read any of his books, I read a lot of his books back in the 80s. I recommend them. Uh, is that perspective? Dispensational premillennialism, which is sometimes called pessimillennialism, or chiliest, or millenarians, uh, they, uh, that idea was very strong uh, in a second century movement called the Montanist, and the Montanists were condemned as a heresy, but they not only believed in spiritual gifts, but they believed through prophesying by the power of the Holy Spirit that they could prophesy the exact day of Christ's return and the exact year, and you get that among some Pentecostals today. So, uh, and again, we believe in speaking in tongues, we believe in casting out demons, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit will never show you anything contrary to Scripture. He will often show you things contrary to your pre previous understanding of Scripture, but He will only show you what always was in Scripture all along that you were missing. He will never show you something like the exact hour and day, because Jesus said He wouldn't. <laughs> that would be nonsense. So... Um, Generally, in the dispensational premillennialism, which grew up about 150 years ago, you, it tends to go along with antinomianism, legalism, Gnosticism, reductionist, uh, all the things we address in this church, a low view of the church. It tends to be anti-liturgy, uh, and it sometimes goes along with cessationism, but most Pentecostals and Charismatics, especially Pentecostals, are dispensational premillennialists because most Pentecostals came out of those circles and those movements and never used the, you know, the Holy Spirit is supposed to lead us and guide us into all the truth, but they never approached the Holy Spirit that way. They approached the Holy Spirit for more exciting worship, power for evangelism, some rest restoration of spiritual gifts, but not for a rethink of all of, of biblical paradigms and ways to go about doing the, the walking the, the things of the faith. So, hope you understand that. Now, just to explain some differences between historical and dispensational pre-mills, first of all, there were plenty of historical pre-mills throughout the history of the church. Dispensational premillennialism started in the 19th century. Dispensational pre-mills believed that Israel, that everything that the Old Testament says to Abraham and the prophets and so forth only applies to Israel and to a geopolitical restored Israel that will once again have a temple and the Jews will once again be saved by works and once again be saved by, by temple sacrifices. Historical premillennials never believe such a thing, although many of them believe there will be a physical Israel. There already is a physical Israel. It has been since 1948. So... Um, Historical premillennials don't believe there will be a restoration of temple sacrifice because that would be a negation of the whole purpose of Christ's coming. 
<laughs> and a negation of everything the Bible teaches about our sin nature and everything else. Uh, historical premillennials would never give predictions about when it's going to be and have schemes and sell big books and have late night televisions and publish the late great planet Earth or any of that kind of nonsense. Um, and historical premillennials are not necessarily that pessimistic is, is, is to the degree that dispensational premillennials are. Dispensational premillennials would say the only thing we can hope for is this reduced vision of Christianity where my goal as a Christian is to get more people to pray the sinner's prayer, punch a ticket to heaven, and hopefully get them to stay in church and maybe say shallow Jesus things on their Facebook. But, you know, the idea that they would actually be become a disciple of Christ and obedient and become re-educated and, and become a light, world-changing kind of person, we can't hope for that. We can only... As the ship sinks, we can just pull a few more rats in, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as the rats are jumping off. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much the, unfortunately. And so when you have that vision, we've gone from the most Christianized culture, perhaps in the history of the world, to an incredibly secular, anti-Christian culture. And because most Christians still live in their kind of Christian cocoons to one way or another, we just don't realize how bad it is out there. We've given away the whole culture to the pagans in every way. Because whatever you aim for is what you'll get. Now, I didn't get to get into the five views of Revelation. I do want to just end with Roman numeral five. Why eschatology matters, because I'm seven or eight minutes past my time, and I could be shot. So, uh, sorry. Um, hopefully, you all forgive me. Why, you know, why this matters is simply this. What you aim for is what you get in life. There, I would suggest to you, if you find yourself not being a very zealous Christian, it's because you really don't have this hope. 1 John 3, 3 says, We know that when we see him, we will be like him. And whoever has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. When you, when you see the vision God has for our life to, as the church, the vision of restoring the church, the, revision, the vision of restoring the gifts of the Spirit, the vision of restoring a more biblical way, you know, becoming a, a people, the book, a radical covenant community, the vision of turning the world upside down for Christ, and you believe it will influence every area of human endeavor, that's going to give you a lot to do. And that's why I still say to this day, boredom is God's gift to you. If you ever experience boredom, God is trying to say you don't get it yet. When you start to really encounter God, Christ the way he wants you to, You'll never have time to be bored again. In fact, you may have to, one or two years out, schedule maybe a time to be bored. <laughs> you know, like two years from now, I hope to take a three-day vacation. But until then, I've got to, you know, I have to be about our Father's business. And this matters because it matters not only for how zealous you are, but how comprehensive you see the things of Christ becoming. And in in our goal to change the whole world for Christ. Amen.